So part two of Thomas Scott to uh, a, a three-part series. Um, and so before we before we get into it, uh, no, we're laughing. Uh, oh, you're not. Sorry. I've got a laser pointer. I'm going to point it right on the board. We abandoned. Yeah, you're on your own today, buddy. <laughs> let me uh, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you so much for the joy of being in your house among your people. We thank you so much for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you that we can learn in joy together, and we can lay our minds to your word and consider a man who you redeemed out of great sin, great error, and how you used a man of God to do that. So teach us this morning, Lord, how how to be good defenders of the faith, contenders for the faith, but how to be balanced as well. So please, Holy Spirit, grant my words clarity and grant the hearts of the hearers to understand. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, so we're, we're talking about Thomas Scott, a few of the resources. Again, I've used the life turn. Thank you. The life of Thomas Scott. We're there? Thank you, sir. I'm using a few resources uh, in this discovery, uh, written by his son, and then Thomas Scott's own account called The Force of Truth. So if you uh if you want to read Thomas Scott's account of his own conversion, this is what I think the most recent edition of his biography looks like. It's not much. Find it on Amazon, probably have it there by Tuesday. So, uh, And then also John Newton's works where he interacts with, with Scott through his letters. And also we get a peek into Newton's own personal biography, what he thought about Scott behind closed doors. So that's always uh, really good to hear because... John Newton's biographies are not a published work right now, so I got to peek into that a little bit. So our agenda last time was to talk about Scott's early life, his ministry, what made him an unlikely convert, and then we ended last time with basically his first interaction with John Newton. So our agenda for today is to, to expand on that, their first meeting together, and then dig into the letters that they exchanged, and this is kind of the meat and potatoes of why I wanted to get to this study. These men exchanged letters and talked theology, talked about uh, lots of things concerning theology. And I wanted to boil those things down for us so that we could be kind of glean from Newton his wisdom in dealing with this, uh, this man, Thomas Scott. So who was Newton's opponent again? Just to, to recap, <clears throat> Scott entered the ministry as a Socinian, a man who basically denied the Trinity. He was a Unitarian, one God, one person, okay? He also entered the ministry as a Pelagian. He believed that man was basically good. He wasn't born morally corrupt, and that he could, by the powers of his own reason, come to an understanding of God. And he was also an Arminian. Based on uh, the will of man, man could either freely choose or reject the grace of God. And regarding personal holiness, we discovered last time Scott's own um, confession that he was a hypocrite. He never prayed, and he was so convicted about his prayerlessness and godlessness that he could barely utter the words, God have mercy on me. That was about the extent of his prayer. So this was the man who, who Newton was, 
was uh, talking with. This man entered the ministry at 26 years old. He was an intelligent man. He was a proud man. He was totally leaning on all of his abilities. And he ended uh, the recounting of his entering into the ministry this way. I never think of this daring wickedness, he says, without being filled with amazement that I am out of hell. Scott's own estimation of himself was, how in the world did I get here? How did I get into the ministry? But he also recounted why he was an unlikely convert just because of his nature. He was deep into some very dark heresies and errors. Uh, Arminianism, Socinianism, Pelagianism, they all have their different flavors and different depths of depravity in that thinking. But he also was just, in his spirit and temper, he was a, a combative man. He was one of those people who just hammered in on the jot and tittle and wouldn't let his opponent go until he argued them into submission. His situation in life, he, he didn't have a lot of money, and so he had to be very careful with his, word, with his words. If he said something wrong, that could be the end of his, his career and his support. He said he was ambitious and excessively fond of, of that honor which comes from man. He, he loved the praise of men. And he rejected Methodism. Now, we, we shared that term last time, and we'll share it today. Methodism was basically a catchword for Calvinism back then. If you were called a Methodist, you were basically being lumped in with Reformation teaching on Calvinism, the five points of Calvinism, the solace, things like that. And he said, I had no more thought of becoming what the world calls a Methodist than turning Muslim. That's how much he hated Calvinism. So this is the man that uh, Scott was. And so Scott's estimation of Newton up to this point that was that Newton was a Methodist. Up to May of 1775, this was just three years after Scott entered the ministry, he had not yet met John Newton personally. He had heard of him as a fellow curate, that's just a pastor, and he knew Newton's theological positions. He didn't think much of them. Uh, puffed up in his own pride, he trusted his natural abilities, and he said this, I felt an eager desire of entering into a religious controversy especially with a Calvinist. He was ready to fight. Here's this guy filled up with knowledge in his head, puffed up in his own pride. He's going to bring himself down. He's going to bring down a Calvinist. He's on the hunt. So Newton, what was, what was Scott's estimation of Newton? Newton was a Methodist. Again, that was just Calvinism of the day. Um, he, Scott rejected total depravity. Scott rejected... Uh, the idea that man's fallen nature, his fallen mind, cannot reason about God rightly apart from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So he embraced natural reason. It made him averse to sola scriptura. He had, you know, he didn't rely on scripture alone. And this is a constant theme in Newton's dealing with Scott, bringing him back to the font, bringing him back to the source, bringing him back to dealing with scripture alone. Scott also thought Newton was a rank fanatic. Uh, Newton's experiential Calvinism, uh, we could say something like it wasn't dry and emotionless. Um, it was too religious for Scott. Scott was very cold, formal. Uh, he was a terrible pastor, just an absolute terrible pastor. And he thought Newton's warmth of Calvinism was fanatical. 
to, to mix any sort of uh, warmth and emotion into your theology just was, was, was off the ranch for Scott. <laughs> Scott thought Newton was a talentless preacher. Uh, he said of Newton's abilities, both natural and acquired, he just he thought they were contemptible. He says this, Once I had the curiosity of hearing him preach and not understanding his sermon, I made a very great jest of it where I could without any offense. He just thought Newton was a talentless blockhead, um, didn't really have any use for his sermons or his thoughts. And he thought he was whimsical, paradoxical, unintelligible. Um, we've all heard those questions, right, as Calvinists. If God is sovereign, then why, and fill in the brain, blank, pray, why evangelize, why do these things? Well, Newton being a Calvinist and preaching both the sovereignty of God and uh, man's responsibility, Scott looked at this and just thought, this is just unintelligible. It's paradoxical. It makes no sense. He had no, no time for hearing Newton in those matters. So in, in Scott's mind, Newton was low-hanging fruit. Um, and in Scott's estimation, he was easily dismissed and defeated. So Scott wanted a, a religious controversy. He wanted to fight a Calvinist, and Newton was squarely within his sights. Scott says this, Let it suffice to say that I was brim full of proud self-sufficiency, very positive and very obstinate. And being situated in the neighborhood of some of those who in the world calls Methodists, I joined in the prevailing sentiment, held them in sovereign contempt, spoke of them in derision, declaimed against them from the pulpit as persons full of bigotry, enthusiasm, and spiritual pride. I laid heavy things to their charge, and I endeavored to prove their doctrines and what they hold to be dishonorable to God. This was a man who wasn't indifferent, but an enemy of the truth. And he called Calvinism destructive to morality. And in some companies, he says, I chose to conceal some part of my sentiments and in all affected to speak as a friend of universal toleration. We've met those people, right? Those passive aggressives. We're just universally tolerant. But he says, yet scarce you could find any person more proud and violently prejudiced against both their persons and principles than me. So here was this man out in public, you can picture him, a politician, universally tolerant, benevolent to all. And yet he, he was just a, a man who was just proud and violently prejudiced, he says. One gets this idea that Scott looked down his nose in superior scorn at the Calvinists. He was a graceless man and he had a graceless approach. But I want to make two notes here before we move to the next slide. Note the theological mood of the day, the context. The, pre the prevailing sentiment at this time was that Calvinism was unpopular. Um, Scott agreed and joined in. Uh, in the book, John Calvin in Context, Crawford Gribben notes that, quote, despite some extraordinary achievements, Calvinist theology was in decline by the end of the 17th century, being defended by a shrinking number of clergy and adherents of established and dissenting churches. You would think as you examine that period, it was, it was a, a glowing and warm time for Calvinism, but that wasn't the case. It was already dying off. Now, I bring up this point because we need to realize that Newton, in a sense, was outnumbered in his day. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? What's the prevailing sentiment in America? It's certainly not Calvinism. Certainly not Calvinism. 
or at least his theological sentiments were in decline. Scott was in the mainstream. Scott had the church culture behind him, okay? But as we'll see, Newton remained tender. Newton remained tender at, the, at that moment, in those moments. He was outnumbered, but he remained tender. I highlight that because when we defend the truth, our flesh can kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, hunker down. We get backed in a corner and what do we do? We put up our fists. We start throwing punches. We shoot first, ask questions later. We feel outnumbered. We can begin to justify coarse thoughts, coarse words. as quote unquote, we're the only ones left, Lord. You remember that from 1 Kings 19. God asks Elijah, what are you doing, Elijah? And what does Elijah say? I've been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, am only left. Please don't ever get there. You're not the only Calvinist in the world. And they seek my life to take it away. He was outnumbered. Elijah was outnumbered and he despaired. His despair led into sinful thoughts and actions. So just note the theological mood in which Newton labors, but also note the intellectual dishonesty of Scott. Scott said this, I endeavored to prove the doctrines which I supposed them to hold, for I had never read their books to be dishonorable to God. Note the intellectual dishonesty of Scott. Scott had never read the sources, yet he had hearty agreements against them. So much so that he styled his life to avoid them. He really didn't know what they truly believed. He was being intellectually dishonest. Have we ever found ourselves doing this? We need to ask ourselves that question. We need to be frank. That's lazy and intellectually dishonest. Please don't argue with someone theologically if you've not read or listened to them. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. That's not the Christian way. Of course, I would encourage you to go to the sources. Go to the, go to the place, go to the person, go to their writings and read them. That's always best. But if you can't do that, find a trusty secondary source. But also notice Scott's willingness to confess those things. As a Christian reflecting back on those times, he was willing to confess intellectual dishonesty there. He didn't just chunk resources at people or defend positions that he had no idea really what he was saying. He had never read his opponent's resources. So we can't be intellectually dishonest in that way. So what about their first meeting? What about their first meeting? Scott and, Newton, Scott and Newton met for the first time in May of 1775. Scott records this event as such. He says, it was at this time my correspondence with Mr. Newton commenced. At the visitation in May of 1775, we exchanged a few words in, in an argumentative way in the room among, among the clergy, which I believe drew many eyes upon us. So this first interaction with Newton is recorded on the heels of the fact that Scott was eager for a theological debate, and you can, you can picture it. Here are all these ministers in a room, probably all Anglican ministers, and there's Scott, and he sees Newton and makes a beeline. I'm going to take this guy down. At that time, it's recorded in Scott's uh, The Force of Truth. At that time, he, Newton, prudently declined the discourse. But a day or two after, sent me a short note and a little book for my perusal. Scott says, this was the very thing I wanted. 
and I gladly embraced the opportunity, which according to my wishes seemed now to offer. Scott had his fight. This I did, God knows, with no inconsiderable expectations that my arguments would prove irresistibly convincing and that I should have the honor of rescuing a well-meaning person from his enthusiastical delusions. You can just feel the arrogance brewing out of this man. Scott confesses at the time he had a very favorable opinion and respect for Newton's character. Scott describes Newton's character as benevolent and disinterested in, in debate, inoffensive and a laborious minister. But what Scott didn't know at the time, or the connection he wasn't making, and we're going to flesh this out in a moment, is the fact that though Scott hated Newton's doctrine, it was that very thing that produced Newton's character. Let me say that again. Scott hated Newton's doctrine. But he wasn't making the connection that it was, it was Newton's doctrine, his Calvinism, for lack of a better word, that produced Newton's character. His reliance on the sovereignty of God, his graciousness in his speech, his patience, his calm-heartedness in debate, that produced Newton's character. So after, that, uh, after receiving Newton's letter, a day or two after picking a fight uh, with Newton, um, Scott uh, writes back to Newton in a lengthy and blunt letter, and Newton records this in his diary. Received an unexpected letter from Mr. Scott, my brother curate near me. Very long and frank. It seemed dictated by a spirit in search of the truth. So who would ever come to the conclusion that a man who picked a public fight with you was not only a brother curate, but a man who was a spirit in search of the truth. Newton saw something in Scott that probably Scott couldn't even see in himself. He saw past the facade. And Newton continues, much of my leisure has been employed in writing to Mr. Scott. Hitherto I gain little ground. It is thy prerogative, O Lord, to enlighten and awaken the heart. In dependence upon thy blessing, I persevere. And he ends his diary in truth. Newton worked and rested in light of the sovereignty of God. And Scott basically replies back and says, he met my expectations. I, he, he by no means answered my expectations, sorry. He was, he was expecting Newton to, to be a man who put up his fists and threw punches, but Newton returned a very friendly and long answer to his letter. And this is a telltale thing about Newton, and we'll discover this in a moment. Scott says, he carefully avoided the mention of those doctrines which he knew would offend me. <clears throat> he carefully avoided the mention of those doctrines which he knew would offend me. When have we ever done that in a theological debate? We almost see uh, if everything's a fire, then really nothing's a fire. Okay? If we see, if we can't weigh doctrines in a way, all are important, all are truth. But if everything is something to be conquered right at that moment, we're not being wise defenders of the truth. And Newton was a wise defender of the truth. He knew those things which Scott believed. But, but Scott said he would go out of his way to avoid those doctrines which he knew would offend me. Newton reminds me of James 3.13, who is wise and understanding among you. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So Newton was not simply a man of understanding, but
but a man of wisdom. He had been taught by the gospel and the gospel had affected him deeply and confronted him and made him meek and wise as he dealt with others. So Scott notes for us, in this manner of our correspondence, it, it began and it continued for nine or 10 letters. So they exchanged nine or 10 letters over about a six month period. And he says, I made use of every endeavor in my letters to draw him into controversy. You can just picture Scott wanting Newton to fight, wanting to throw a punch. And he said, I filled my letters with definitions, with inquiries, with arguments, with objections, with consequences, and I required an explicit answer. Hmm. Reflect on whether or not we've been that sort of person. I have. Or we're that sort of person now. We're one of those who we've got to, we've got to know the definition. We've got to make the argument. We've got to have the objection and give me full and explicit answers right now, Pastor. You know, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, obey your leaders and submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That word basically means when you see someone, that involuntary expression of, it just comes out of you because you see the person. For that would be no advantage to you. That would be no advantage to you, brother or sister, if, you're, if your pastors have to labor among you with groaning. And we've had people like that in our lives. We see them and we just, oh my goodness, Lord, help me. I'm trying to change. Yeah, that's right, same here. <laughs> you and me both, brother. <laughs> um, Scott says Newton shunned everything controversial as much as possible and filled his letters with the most useful and least offensive instructions, except now and then he dropped hints concerning the necessity and true nature of faith. So you get this, this tone we're, we're after here in Newton's life, okay? So what about their letters? So this brings us to examine briefly their exchange. Uh, this first, from this first meeting in May of 1775 to December of that same year, roughly six months, okay? It's eight or nine letters. And I wanna start out with a quote from Samuel Miller about this. Uh, Samuel Miller wrote the preface to uh, Scott's biography, The Force of Truth, and he's really the man and the reason why Scott's biography was published uh, in, in modern times. Samuel Miller says this, 49 fiftieths, of all the controversial writings on the subject of religion that I've ever met with in the course of a long life have been far too polemical in their language and spirit. That is, they too often remind the reader, however decent and even polite the style of the tug of war. Newton had the rare talent of arguing with an errorist with so much fraternal benignity as well as force and of conducting all his controversial arguments with such constant practical appeals to the heart as to entirely disarm the polemical spirit. Newton was a man who could disarm his enemies in the midst of theological controversy. Miller goes on to say, this is a happy art, or rather, I should say, a precious gift of grace, which nothing but a large measure of the spirit of Christ can enable any man with entire success to exhibit. We are never so likely to convince and win an adversary 
as when we can so address him as to make him forget that we are arguing against him and open his whole heart to our affectionate appeals. Newton had this talent in as great a degree as almost any man ever had. That's why I love John Newton, because I want to be that man. I'm a bulldozer in a conversation. I'm unsophisticated many, many times. I'm unrefined. I lack finesse. I lack patience. Newton exemplified a godly approach to controversy. Scott, after his conversion, said in his biography, he hoped that Newton's letters would be published. And strangely enough, he says, I hope that mine are forgotten. And history actually answers that. You can't find Scott's letters anywhere. But you can find Newton's. And men have seen down through the ages the usefulness of Newton's approach to Scott. So I've decided out of these nine or ten letters to kind of boil down, boil down some salient points for us to consider uh, as we contend for the faith. So I'll introduce quotes. Uh, I've got ten points. It's late in the morning. We'll cover five, hopefully, today and five next time. If we don't get to all five this morning, we'll cover them next time. So as I read uh, The Force of Truth, um, Scott's uh, autobiography and Newton's letters and all those things, I boiled down basically uh, 10 things that we need to discover. So here's the first one. Newton was a man gripped by God's sovereignty. This is extremely useful in contending for the faith. Gripped by God's sovereignty. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Over and over in his letters, Newton plainly tells Scott about his resting in God's good purposes to change Scott in due time. It's in every letter Newton wrote to Scott. Newton says this to Scott, as I've told you more than once, I do not mean to dictate to you. In other words, hey, buddy, believe this. Think this. I don't wish to dictate to you or wish you to receive anything upon my basically own words, but in the simplicity of friendship, I will give you my thoughts from time to time upon the points and leave the event to the divine blessing. You can see Newton not holding on to Scott in these arguments or even Newton's own um, pride or anything like that, but he hands Scott off back to the Lord as he argues with this man, as he fights for the truth. So being gripped by God's sovereignty over all things, Newton was deeply useful when contending for the faith. It made him a very calm-hearted man in the fight. Knowing God's sovereignty calmed his heart down. We've all had that thump in our veins right here, right? We see him coming. We know it's about to happen. Just about closes our throat up. Newton was a very calm-hearted man. There was no anxiousness, nervousness, restlessness, he slept like a Calvinist. Made him also a very patient man. Over and over, he knew that in God's time, God would do his work. He was resigned in this interaction with Scott with dropping little breadcrumbs along the way that Scott could pick up. Never too much, never all at one time, but always it seemed just enough to, to bring Scott along just a step further. Not that Newton wouldn't eventually address certain doctrines with Scott, but a good grip on God's sovereignty made Newton patient. And patient 
uh, being patient, it made him calculated. That's not a mean thing. Calculated. It made him think deeply about how I could best minister truth to the heart of a person. For some reason, I, I see that scene in Braveheart. You know, they're there on the front line and, and Wilberforce is God, not Wilberforce. Um, uh, Wallace is going, hold, hold. And the army's coming this way and the guys are just like, when is he going to let loose? And then bam, the, the time comes to lower the spears. God's sovereignty made him patient. It made him, made him say things and do things at the right time. It made him a very laborious man, a man of means. He saw this interaction with Scott as a providential circumstance. He prayed, he worked in light of God's sovereignty. Newton several times calls their interaction unexpected yet welcome. And so he labored as a man of means. And it made him a very durable and joyous man. Uh, Newton endured theological controversy with durable joy. Durable joy. His interaction with Scott reminded me of when Paul and Barnabas uh, in Acts 15 uh, endured what the scripture says, no small dissension and debate with the Judaizers over circumcision. Go read that account in Acts 15. As both Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem, the citadel, you know, they're going to go debate the Judaizers about circumcision. The scripture records this. Being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Now, if you knew three weeks from now you were going to enter the biggest theological controversy of your life between now and then, could you spread great joy among the brothers as you're going to the debate. Newton's grip on God's sovereignty allowed him to do that. And Paul and Barnabas did as well. It's possible to be a joyful contender for the truth with future controversy ahead of us. It's possible because God is sovereign. Number two, Newton was a holy man. Newton was a holy man. His character, as described by Scott, was benevolent. He was a good-willed, well-meaning, and loving man. He was disinterested in theological controversy. Kind of rings of Jude 3. I, want, I wanted to, I long to talk about the common things rather than things, rather than things we have indifference. He was inoffensive. He didn't hide behind that, that frail argument. Well, it's just the truth. To justify considering such things as context and tone and emphasis. Some of us just strap the truth to a baseball bat, boom, let it ride, knock our opponent's teeth out. This is the truth. You ought to believe it. Why not? But he was a laborious minister. Scott, Scott says, I was so convicted at Newton's life because I neglected my church. Newton travels from two and a half miles away on foot to minister to Scott's own church because because Scott neglected those things. And that convicted Scott deeply. I've talked to several older saints over the years, and mainly men, and there's been in them, uh, among other things, a constant theme expressed in their desires. And I thought this was a good point to kind of highlight, highlight this. That these men in their twilight 
they, they didn't want it to become difficult, rude, uh, ones that are curmudgeon. Does anybody know what a curmudgeon is? Somebody's just bad-tempered. Get off my lawn. Get off my theological lawn. They long to let the longevity and hardness of life and even the perceived stupidity of the youth to make them more tender and useful, not more fed up and distant. I've seen that thread in several older godly men, and it got me thinking about my own life. They wanted to be more Christ-like. I heard their hearts. Some of them shed tears about it. It made me think, what, what good is wisdom if after all these years, if our characters become so unapproachable such that no one can draw from the wells of wisdom from which God has taught us? What's the point of wisdom if we get in our older years and we're so unapproachable we can't distill that to anyone? It just kind of makes it pointless, doesn't it? I pray to my own heart, Lord, don't let me waste my older years growing frustrated and disconnected. I heard these men and they saw that as a great threat and a reality in some of their lives. Now, I said that to say this. Newton was almost 25 years Scott's senior in natural age, and Newton had been in Christ as long as Scott had been alive. Okay, Scott was 28 when he picked this fight with Newton, who was then 50. He was a family man of 25 years at that time, and he was a well-seasoned minister. Could Newton have pulled the rank card? Sit down, young man, and listen. I guess he could. He could pull the rank card. But did he? He did not pull the rank card. He saw all the blunders of Scott's life, and he absorbed them. In wisdom, he absorbed them. He realized the messiness of learning. Learning is messy. You're dealing with young Christians, they're knuckleheads. I'm still a knucklehead. You have to realize the messiness of learning and teaching the youth and even teaching people who are outside of Christ. It's messy. We just have to accept that fact. So Newton was a holy man and he was gentle in his holiness. His holiness was, as Samuel Miller put it, a disarming holiness. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes we think of really holy men as unapproachable. Newton's holiness was disarming. His enemies laid their weapons down. It's just an amazing balance to me. I don't know if you've considered those things in your life. That is hard. It's hard. Number three, being holy, Newton was a man who received sinners. Newton was a man who received sinners. Now, at first, that seems like a paradox. Come out from among, you, among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. Well, there's our call to be you know, dwellers of caves, um, living uh, away from the ungodly. But Jesus said, Lord, I don't, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil. We know that, we know that phrase, we're in the world, but what? Not of the world. We can be holy and receive sinners. Jesus did that. You can look at Luke 15. And Philippians 4, 5 says, let your reasonableness or moderation or gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. And so he received sinners by the way he spoke. He says in a letter to Scott, my dear friend, 
I gladly adopt your address and can assure you that the interchange of every letter, listen to this, unites my heart more closely to you. We read that and it sounds very flowery and flowery and eloquent and wow. And we just read right by it. This man, the more he interacted with a guy like Scott, the more his heart was united to Scott because he was a man who realized that he had been transformed by grace and he could receive sinners just like his Lord had received him. He was speaking with a contentious man. Newton was speaking with a contentious man, arguing those fine points, yet he received him in the way he spoke. But this is even more astonishing. And this, this, as I read The Force of Truth, this stopped me in my tracks. I want you to think about this. Newton received sinners when life fell apart. In his great error, in his sinful pride, and his disdain just hated Newton's doctrine. <laughs> it's astonishing that the man, Thomas Scott, thought of none other than John Newton when Scott's life fell apart. Scott writes this. From the conclusion of our correspondence in December of 1775 till April of 1777, what, about a year and a half or so, it had been almost wholly dropped. Scott went dark on Newton. Newton was wanting to carry on the conversation. Scott saw that he wasn't winning, flipped the light switch, went dark. To speak plainly, I did not care for his company. I did not mean to make any use of him as an instructor, and I was unwilling the world should think us in any way connected. But, but, under discouraging circumstances, and I think this was possibly at the loss of a child, under discouraging circumstances, I had occasion to call upon him. And his discourse so comforted and edified me that my heart, being by his means relieved from its burden, became susceptible of affection to him. Scott's life falls apart, and he thinks of none other than his opponent, the Calvinist, John Newton. And he says, Newton's words were such a balm to my soul that it relieved my heart from its burden, and I began to have an affection for him. This is, I wish we could just stop here for the rest of the time and just ponder this. It made me ask, what caliber of man is Newton that his enemies sought his counsel when life fell apart? That sounds like Christ. What sort of God did Newton know? A God who receives sinners. Who receives sinners. What good is the truth, brothers, to bring a man farther up and farther in if we cannot sit with someone with whom we disagree? Is the truth just for us? Are we to sit in our own theological think tank? What good are we if we are not known to be one who can receive sinners? I want to be known as that kind of guy. I want to be that kind of Christian. I want to be that kind of Christian. Number four, receiving sinners. Newton was a man who wisely considered the character of the one he received. In the later part of Jude, we'll discover this in our sermon series, Lord willing. Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. That's Jude's way of helping us realize that there are 
types of people and types of sins and even theological errors in which we have to deal with others in different ways. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Though the truth is there in every encounter, we have to be wise enough, like Newton, to consider the character of those with whom we're dealing. Like a good physician of the soul, Newton sought to understand his patient. If you go to the doctor and he just throws medicine at you you without giving him an examination, you're probably not going to go to that doctor. It's the same thing with a man's soul. You have to consider him particularly. He was wise. Newton was wise and perceived Scott as a spirit searching for the truth. Not a blasphemer, but an inquirer. Newton also also knew that he was dealing with a very proud man. A man who rejected total depravity and relied on human reason. And so he crafted his approach based on those things. It reminds me of Proverbs 15, 23, to make an apt answer is a joy to a man who receives it and a word in season, how good it is. Some of us just shotgun the truth all the time and whatever lands, lands without considering maybe not that truth at that time, maybe later, but this truth at this time. Does that make sense? Not only what to say, but how to say it. Isaiah 50, verse 4, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. There are many tools in a doctor's bag, and which one to use depends on the diagnosis of the patient. We have to be wise in that way as Christians as we defend the truth. And we can't know how to contend for the truth in this way if we don't consider the character of our patient. How are they as a person? What are their particular besetting sins? What's their past that would give them context to this moment in time? What passions drive them? Newton wasn't a blockhead. He had consideration of others. He received sinners and received them as that sinner, considering the character of the one he received. And then finally, Newton was a man who recognized that there was a process in coming to the truth. There's a process in coming to the truth. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 130, speaks of the unfolding of the word of God, giving light. That unfolding takes time for some people, okay? doesn't come all at once. doesn't shine on us all at once. It's first this, then that. Never more than we can handle, never less than we need. First milk, then meat, right? How we raised our kids. We didn't throw steak at them. Nine-year-old, right? Right. <laughs> okay. All right. Maybe that's why we want to move on. No. Um, uh, we have to realize that. First milk, then meat. It's said of the Lord Jesus himself. He grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom. He pondered the scripture. Light dawned in his mind and his heart. Okay? And Newton understood this about every man's journey to the truth. There's a process. Newton writes to Scott that the truth of Scripture is not some mathematical formula, but it's like a mirror. The more we look into it, the more we see. The view will grow and grow upon us. And he brings out this point, we'll end here, he brings out this point in Peter's life as an analogy to Scott's life. Newton says, when our Lord pronounced Peter blessed, 
declaring that he had learned that which flesh and blood could not have taught him. You remember Peter's reply, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Yet Peter was at that time much in the dark. Six verses later, the sufferings and death of Jesus, Newton says, though the only and necessary means of Peter's salvation were an offense to Peter. May it never be, Lord. Peter goes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Six sentences later, he says, may it never be. Peter was growing in his understanding of who the Lord was. There was much darkness in his life. Newton says, but Peter lived to the glory of God and what he could once not bear to hear of. Peter had received grace to love the Lord Jesus, to follow him, to venture all and to forsake all for him. And these were the first good dispositions planted there by God. And they led to further advances. And he says, so it is still today. Newton recognized in Scott's life the dawning of truth. The dawning of truth. He realized that Scott was not where he needed to be. But God was beginning to work in his heart and he was patient to see that process. Light dawned. And I hope we see the point. Light dawns upon a man slowly, much more often than it, than it comes in just a full brilliance of light. So as we see those who are struggling with truth, wrestling with it, honestly wrestling with it, let us be patient. Let us realize that, that there's a process in coming to the truth. And we can, can we detect the beginnings of that process in the person? So where have we been so far? We've seen that Newton had a robust, robust trust in God's sovereignty. He was a holy man, which made him receive sinners, and there's no contradiction there. He was uh, a warm receiver of sinners. He was wise in considering those particular characters, and he recognized that coming to the truth is a process. This is half of the argument I want to make, which made Newton a master apologist, a master debater of Christian truth and bringing a lost soul to Christ. So we'll discover five more uh, next time and close out our study of this wonderful interaction between those two men. Any questions before we wrap it up? I've gone over time. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're convicted because I read this like a few times with tears in my eyes. Lord, help me to be that man. So let me pray for us. Lord, we lift up this time to you. We ask you to please help us to be those who are settled in your sovereignty, not anxious, not wavering, not losing sleep. We pray you would help us to be more holy, Lord, that we may receive sinners with joy and warmth. We ask you to help us to be considerate of their own characters and realize that learning is messy and be patient with those who are on that path. Be gracious to us, Lord, in the fight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.